Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Okay, Vanessa, if we had an award for the most fun meets the most data nerdiest episode we've ever done, this would be it. Emily Oster is just the guru of all gurus when it comes to breaking down data in the world of parenting. She also might be our new best friend. One can only hope, Cara. Now, you will hear Emily refer to herself as not a people person, but you will be amazed at how wrong she is about herself because she's a total blast. And we cannot wait for you to hear this fascinating and hilarious episode. I love how we just threw her under the bus in her intro. But really what we mean is, Emily, you're the greatest. Come back all the time. Enjoy. Hi, Emily. Hi. Hi, you. We're I'm so good. excited to have I'm you. I'm excited. <laughs> this is great. Thank you for having me. So, you guys might know that I don't really get starstruck all that easily, but this is like, I'm feeling a little bit starstruck today. Emily, you are like, you know, Beyonce could walk on the Zoom and I'd be like, okay, but having <laughs> you here is like kind of a big deal. 
I'm sorry, Beyonce would also be a big deal. Beyonce would also be a big deal. Um, well, I'm very, that's very nice of you to say. And I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of you guys. So I'm, yeah, I'm just excited to talk about, I don't know, parenting, puberty. We're going everywhere with it. Okay, here's where I'd love to start. I want to start by calling out the Venn diagram overlap between what you do and what we do. And you talk about this actually a lot on your own podcast and in your own newsletter. You talk about being an economist who looks at medical issues and healthcare issues and science issues. You're very medicine adjacent. You know, I come from medicine training and I'm very data adjacent. And there's so much overlap there. So I want to start by asking how it feels to be medicine adjacent and specifically to ask if you are comfortable or uncomfortable with people taking your advice as medical advice. It's an extremely good question. And I would say that I have a particular way that I would like people to take my advice. And I'll tell you what that is. And then I will tell you, you know, when I get worried. So, I mean, I think the best use of the things I'm putting out in parent data or in in, in the newsletter, in the books, all of the places that I put out the content is to absorb it as data. And then when it comes to, when the parts of it that are really about medical decision-making to bring that to the conversations you have with your providers. And to be clear, like some of what I write about is like really parenting. And there it's just the data and you're going to make the choice. And actually, if you went to ask your pediatrician about it, they would be like, well, here are a few resources, but this isn't really a medical question. But then there are things, particularly in pregnancy, where it really is a medical question. And I think what the book can do in its sort of best use case is to get people one step further towards understanding the context to have a good conversation. I think that's what I would like people to do. I think there are places where I do want to make sure that people are bringing their individual circumstances to their doctors when they are looking for medical advice, because at the end of the day, even if I believe, and I very strongly do, that the data that I'm putting out is the best data and is very reliable and is it, it is still an average almost always. Even when we say like we have like a large randomized trial, we're still picking up the average. So let me give you one concrete example, which is people ask me a lot about induction at 39 weeks, which is really a question about what is the right medical treatment. And so what I can say to that, what I can talk about is, you know, here is the biggest randomized trial we have of this. Here's what we knew before. Here's what this big randomized trial says. Here's what it, you know, here's what we learned from it. Here's what we don't learn from it. But that isn't going to tell you like you should have an induction or you shouldn't have an induction. It's a block of data, a block of information to bring to that conversation. And I think if people leave that and they're like, okay, Emily says don't have an induction, which just to be clear is not what I would say. That's like not a good outcome for me. I don't, that's not how I want people to take the work. Right. I love that. You know, when I used to see patients in the office, the way that I would frame that same concept would be something like, you know, the risk of this side effect is whatever, 10%. Okay. If it happens to you, it's 100%. 100%. If it doesn't happen to you, it's 0%. And so you have to take that number 10% and sort of layer on top of it your own risk stratification, your own comfort with what does that risk look like? And by the way, 10% happens a lot. It happens 10% of the time. Do you ever wish you were a doctor or went to medical school, given how much of this information you end up putting out there? 
sometimes I do think that would have been useful. But the thing is that like for what I'm doing, the training that I have in data analysis is so important. And unfortunately, that actually isn't the kind of training we get as much in medical school. I mean, I spent like, that is like my whole, my PhD is in like data analysis. My academic writing is in data analysis. I like publish papers and statistics journals about data. Like that's my thing. I don't think I would get that. So I think in some ways I'm bringing a perspective that's a bit like complimentary, let's say. Totally. Although you would have been a really good doctor. Thank you. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not great with people, which I feel like is a downside <laughs> of, I don't know. Well, it, it hasn't really stopped great. a lot of people from becoming I, I, doctors. I've been so waiting for your comeback. <laughs> um, no so comment. I am not, I'm not a doctor, although, and I literally every episode, I'm like, just so we're clear, I'm not a doctor. One of the things that we are surprised by, I mean, we shouldn't be because Cara is a physician and has been known as a physician for many decades, is how many healthcare professionals use our podcast and our newsletter to inform their work. And it's like, yeah. it's so flattering because I'm like, well, A, because I'm not a doctor, but B, because I'm like, wait, but you're the person in the room all the time. Like you are the expert. And I would imagine that they use your data all the time. And I'm wondering what recommendations do you have for the people who are seeing, you know, patient after patient and don't have time to like sit and read through studies or, or the research or whatever that we do. What do you recommend to them, Emily? So it's interesting because I actually wouldn't even say the issue is not having time to read through the studies or be up to date. Actually, many of the people who I think will recommend my books to their patients. It's not because they're like, I can't keep up with the the research. That's absolutely not what this is delivering. It's like, I don't have time to get you to where you need to be for us to have the conversations you want to have. And so people, oh, and I bet it's a similar thing here, which is like, you know, I've got 20 minutes with you at this visit and we got a bunch of stuff we want to get done. And I want you to feel really informed. So when we get to the harder questions, you're ready to talk about them. But like, I don't have time. And so that's, those are the doctors who will tell me like, I'll give your book to them because then like, I, you have a lot of the answers. Then they can come back to me. We can have a, you know, more, we can have the conversations we need to have. And I think that's, I bet that's what's going on some of this year too, is huh. that people are, are exper- are sort of thinking of what you're doing as really giving people much more information than they could in the limited time. And I'll say, you know, from the perspective of someone who worked in medicine for a long time and who's married to someone who is still working in a clinical setting, those physicians don't have any time beyond, you know, I mean, there's just no bandwidth. Every piece of extra time has now been subsumed by the electronic medical record. And that just takes hours and hours and hours of their day every day. And so they are gobbling up your data because it is like, it's not metadata. It's not, you know, going to uh, one study that looks at 25 studies and throws out all the outliers and sort of hones in on a question. It is your data is is honed data. It is very different. It is high quality focused data. And I, that's what I see on the clinical side is people are hungry for what you do yeah. because they don't have time to educate themselves. If I, I went to medical school in the 90s and I know I'm really up to date with what happened in the 90s. But if I don't have time to read, (laughs) and it took leaving, I mean, this is so sad, but it took leaving practice to have time to read. Yeah, I think that, 
you know, some of what I'm doing is trying to provide a kind of high level discussion of this new research that is nevertheless digestible. So mm-hmm. it isn't, it isn't up to date. It's funny, usually up to date, like it isn't up to date, which is a resource for, for doctors, which has a lot of material like this, but is very, very, very hyper dense. Cara I holds tr- it over my head every day that I, she has access to up to date. Don't tell anyone. I, I, I had to, I had to I buy, my, my university shut down our access to up to date and I had Come to on. buy it. I was very disappointed. She like, like if Vanessa, you can, you can have my password. Like, she's like, <laughs> sorry, let me go check up to date. You can't check up to date, but, but I can check up to date. But Vanessa is now like, I really don't need up to date because <laughs> I have parent data and it's much clearer <laughs> and much shorter and I can like, read it. But, right, in, so. but in, into readable. And, and I can form. listen to it while shouting at my dog. So Emily, let's dive in to some juicy topics. Yeah. And I want to start with one of our favorite topics and your favorite topics, which is sleep. Oh, I know. So into it. I'm so into it. And you're so into it. And Cara basically- I'm going to bed now. <laughs> it's like yeah. that doll where you pull the string and it's <laughs> like they have one line that they say <laughs> and she's basically like, sleep is so important. Sleep is so important. Sleep is so important. Okay. <laughs> and you've read our book. Mm-hmm. Um, and you very generously blurbed our book. book so if you so buy good. our book for no other reason, it's because Emily says our book is so good. Thank God. <laughs> so what does the data tell us about why sleep is so important? And follow on question, what do we still not know? What data do we not have about sleep? Do you wish we had? Yeah. So uh, let me start with this, the second thing. And at least in the question about sleep, that I think is the most unclear for like to, to researchers is like, we don't know why we sleep. Like you couldn't say the reason that you sleep is X, but we know that it must be like unbelievably important because every animal sleeps, right? Like they, every animal, including like dolphins, they sleep half their brain at like one at one time and half the brain at the other. Just like, there's something that must be so, so crucial because laying down, for, you know, seven hours at night when you could be eaten by a saber tooth tiger, like that seems really stupid. So it's got to be delivering something really good if animals are going to eat you. And so we know, but we don't know what that is. And I think people have different theories and there's you know, versions with me. We have some idea, but like, it's not a sort of super well understood piece of science. So I think that for me, that's like the most interesting unknown about sleep. The thing we do know about sleep is that if you don't get enough of it, it's bad for your functioning. And we know that because that's actually not a hard thing to experiment with. So you can bring people into a sleep lab. You can have them not sleep all night. You can do things to them afterwards. They're stupid. It's like they're drunk. Um, you know, eventually if you don't sleep, you like literally will die. That's those are experiments in rats, not in people, but. But it feels like when you have an infant, you're close like, to yes. that yeah. experiment. And- and the experience, I mean, the experience with little kids and, and, you know, with, with even with sort of postpartum depression, I think we really, you know, some of postpartum depression is, is, you know, beyond, you know, beyond sleep, but actually one of the first things, if you sort of screen positive on a postpartum depression screen, particularly if you're screening and sort of the, like, not at the more extreme end, but at the sort of partial end, one of the first things to tell people is like, can you figure out a way to sleep more? Because not sleeping in a consistent way, even if you're sleeping a little bit, is a substantial contributor to problems with mental health. Yeah, That's in adults. Then we look at kids and you can see that it's not 
you know, you can't do experiments where you keep them up all night, but you can do experiments where you, you know, ask their parents to keep them up an hour later for four days in the week. And that turns out to be terrible. Like kids do their, you know, even a few days of a little bit less sleep. And, you know, I mean, you sort of, as a parent, you kind of know that, like (laughs) it was one time that my daughter went for tea and I gave her like in the afternoon after school and she had an item which turned out to be a very highly caffeinated tea. And I didn't know, I don't know what was wrong with me. And she was up until 1 a.m. She must've been like in the fourth grade or something. She was up to like one o'clock. She just couldn't go to sleep because she'd be like done this at five o'clock. And so, and she was so upset. She was upset. So then the next day she's like a zombie. She, they were taking these like multiplication tests. You know, they would take them every week. And like the previous week she had gotten, you know, 50 multiplications and whatever the time. And this week she got like 18. Her teacher was like, what happened? And she was like, <laughs> literally this fucking day. And so then what was really interesting about that, and I think is part of what maybe we can talk about with older kids is like that experience was incredibly informative for her. Like it's something she brings up I and mean, she's now, you know, that was three years ago. She's now much older is the experience she brings up all the time. Like, remember that time you gave me the tea. And some of it is to say how terrible I am and things, but it's also like, it really ingrained in her this idea that like sleep is super, super important. And it's something I want to prioritize. And I just want to say, and then Cara, ask your question. If you haven't read The Family Firm, you will appreciate how emotionally intelligent Emily's daughter is. She may be the one who should be a a doctor and have good bedside manner because- She's the one who gives you all sorts of coping mechanisms and calming exercises and all of that. So not every child will take one experience three years ago and carry it with them and inform their bedtime routine forever and ever. That's exceptional. All children will remember it and blame their parents for having screwed up. Definitely. But they won't all use it constructively. (laughs) Um, Okay, Cara. The the data there is 100%. Yeah. So what I was going to say is that that description you used where she was trying to go to sleep and she was laying there and she was anxious about it. So the thing that we hear from kids and the adults in their lives very consistently through the puberty years is that sometimes it's that, I hesitate to use the word anxiety because I think that's a loaded word, but it's that frustration. It's that sort of cycle of I'm trying to go to sleep my brain or my body is not ready for whatever reason. Maybe Emily poisoned you with a high dose of caffeine. Perhaps (laughs) it is possible. Or maybe, you know, whatever. You can't turn your brain off. And then that in and of itself keeps kids up and they get in this cycle where they're trying so desperately to sleep and they can't. And that frustration, it's very tangible and it has real implications. So some of this, when we talk about data about sleep, I think is helpful to the listeners to remember that while sleep is really important, pressuring kids to get sleep doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't plug the hole. The thing that parents can do is provide the opportunities for sleep. So when I talk about this with people, I think the biggest issue that I see in the way we're structuring some of our lives is that we're not providing those opportunities that, you know, because of the way particularly as your kids get older, that like school and sports and all this stuff happens, find yourself in a situation in which you're really only able to provide your kid with, you know, seven hours of the night that they could be asleep. Even if they were to like fall asleep the second that their head hit the pillow and wake up at the moment of their alarm, forgetting about, you know, these kind of frustrations and complicated insomnia things, but that's not enough time. 
Like that's not enough sleep. It's difficult to explain to people and for people to absorb sometimes you just might not be able to do some things. That's right. That's right. And likewise, I think it's important in the same way that we talked about data is an average and that there are outliers in the data, you know, for sleep, there are recommendations about how much sleep an individual needs at a given age. But there are people who need more and there are people who they really don't need as much as the recommendations say. And as a parent, I will say that you have to just try as best you can to set things up for success where your kids can get into the recommended window. But if you're getting them in bed and they're going to sleep and they're doing everything right and they're waking up an hour earlier than you had hoped, and that is their rhythm, that is their rhythm. You know, that is at a certain point, it, not everyone fits the paradigm, but most people fit yeah. this paradigm. But I also think there, this is a place where, again, sort of individual feedback is really accessible. I mean, if your kid is, right. there's some very simple ways you can think about, you know, whether a kid is getting enough sleep, are they falling asleep in the middle of the day? If you let them sleep in on the weekends, are they sleeping for two hours? You know, if, if you let your kids sleep until whatever you want on Saturday and they're still getting up at six, I guess your kid wakes up at six and like, that's fine. And you know, that's okay. (laughs) Too bad for you. I hope that you have a TV in that room. (laughs) Oh my God. God forbid. If my kids had TVs in their rooms, it would be like, they would never leave ever again. They would never sleep. They'd never talk to me. But you do say the good news, and this is something that comes up across every single topic we talk to parents about, which is like, once you find yourself in a situation, it's really common for people to say, the horse has left the barn. There's nothing I can do like with tech, with sleep, with eating habits, with drugs and alcohol, all this stuff. And what you talk about with sleep is like, no, you can make real change and you can make real change actually fairly quickly and see real impact. So what recommendations or advice do you have for parents of older kids where you don't just capitulate like there are things, I mean, we give our advice ad nauseum, but I'd love for people to hear from you what you see as some easy ways to address it. Well, first of all, I read your book. So maybe it's just going to sound like the same <laughs> advice because people should just be listening to you. But what I will say is I think that often in our families, we are missing opportunities to engage our kids in these decision-making mm-hmm processes that involve some follow-up. So sleep is a good example. Tech is a good example where like, if you want to set some limits, if you want to set a limit with your five-year-old or you want to enforce a bedtime, you just say, you don't get the iPad. And then what happens is they're mad and then they eventually forget. But like, ultimately, like at that age, like you're the decider, you're the, you're seeing them all the time. You, you get to make the rules, but you don't get to make the rules with your 14-year-old in the same in the same way. And trying to make rules in that way is going to lead to probably in many cases, interactions where then they don't tell you things and they're hiding it and that's not good. But they are also old enough, hopefully, to engage in some in some sort of self-reflection, in some discussion. So I think there is a there is a point here as a family to sort of think about like sitting down and saying, how can we manage some relationship with technology or with sleep? Like what would it take? you know, to get to sleeping more if we think that that's important. And how would we know if it was working, right? I mean, kids are like all people like feedback. And so thinking about like, okay, 
how would we know if you were, if more sleep was making you feel better? What can we do to get that information? I mean, not everybody likes data, but I think that there are, you know, with a, with some kids, at least you got to read out your own kid. But I think that there are opportunities to have these conversations more broadly inside the family, rather than saying like, my rule is you must go to bed at this time to say like, Hey, how can we experiment with this in a way that like potentially is beneficial to you with the opening that like, if it turns out that you're a person just in the much sleep, like that, I'm not going to make a rule that enforces you have to be in bed at nine. Have you ever thought about writing for tweens and teens and presenting the data to them? Because I think there's a huge group that would actually love the data. It's an interesting, I mean, I haven't thought about that, but I, I sort of, I mean, I partly, I think as Vanessa said, my older kid, like is sort of very much on the tail of like wanting to absorb this kind of thing for herself. And so I feel like some of my instincts maybe are not right. Um, but I do actually think this data, so when you talk about, particularly about sort of sleep and some of these, I do actually think kids are kind of, they're more interested in data that, in this kind of evidence than totally. you might think. A hundred percent. I mean, when you, when we explain brain science, brain science kids, is the best. It best. rocks their world. They're so into it. It feels like, oh my God, really? Like yeah. now I understand. I do. They're think not alone. They're not being told to do something. They're being explained why it's happening. Totally. Particularly in those moments of, of puberty when it's like, why is my, like, why is everything all, you know, why am I so sad? Especially when oh. everyone has fill in the blank, you know, right. whatever it is, everyone has. I mean, I just love kids. Can we <laughs> go there with tech since you brought oh, it up? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Because uh. I don't think any of us on this podcast are anti-tech or sort of, I don't think we're rigid about it. We recognize the fluidity of both the tech itself, it keeps evolving, and then the limit setting that has to happen in a home. We all have kids who are in and around the age of tweendom and teendom. So let's go to the data. Mm -hmm. What does the data say a, quote, healthy tech diet looks like? What Help us understand. So this is not a place where the data is great. So certainly you can pull out data that I think would be very concerning about, you know, the sort of relative mental health struggles of kids who engage more or less with social media. And, and I think here we kind of, there's often a distinction between sort of like passive tech and kind of social media tech. And I think that most of our most concerning evidence is around kind of social media stuff. That evidence has the issue that, like the kinds of kids who are engaged a lot with social media are, are different other in different other ways. You don't actually know which direction the causality would go. Is it that I'm engaging with social media because I'm having other problems? Is it that I'm, you know, and at the same time, there's a huge amount of heterogeneity. So for some kids, social media is a place that they find their people or that they can connect in ways that are really healthy. And for some kids, it's just a kind of comparison trap that makes them much less happy. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. 
And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. So it's unfortunate that we both from this data don't know the average impact. And also for your own individual kid would have no idea, even if we knew the average impact, like which part of the distribution is your kid in. In a broad sense, I think there is some reason to be concerned based on, you know, what happened when we introduced Facebook to college campuses and sort of on average depression went up. So I, I think I am very, as a parent, quite anxious about my, like, I do not let my kids engage on social social media. And I'm hoping to not let them do that for a long period of time. But what I do recognize is that it's actually very, it's very hard to hold, mm. very hard to hold that line. In, in some ways, it clearly has costs for them in terms of their social interactions. And so the whole thing is just a hot mess. It's a hot mess. Yeah. Hot I mean, mess. I had a I had a situation this spring where I had 
my young. So I have four kids. Emily, my youngest is thirteen. My oldest so is many, twenty. Vanessa, okay, it's so many. That's Emily. why I look so, so goddamn many. tired. Um, I can't believe you have a. Tw- you actually look um for yeah, twenty. You look amazing. Okay, that, that's not the topic of this podcast. It's the filter. It's, like, it's the filter oh, on really my. Good. Zoom screen, you know, when it says like improve your appearance, it's like all <laughs> it's like all the way at the end of the dial. Um, so I had two interesting things, and I'd be curious to hear from you how you would handle this as both a researcher and a parent. I explicitly told my daughter that she was going to get social media later than her two older brothers did because the research tells us that girls are disproportionately. Yes affected and they're affected between the ages of 11 to 13, whereas boys, they're seeing an impact from 14 to 15. And she's like a fairly with it, thoughtful kid. And we had the conversation and it was fine. Great. I don't know if wielding data in that way is effective. Like we talked about how much kids love science and kids love data. I can't tell if data that feels amorphous or sort of like conceptual is an effective tool to wield when explaining to kids our decisions. And I'll do the follow-up and then I'd love your feedback. My youngest kid secretly got on Snapchat several months before he was 13 and before he was allowed. He's a terrible liar, which was helpful. Um, And I figured it out quickly because he was looking at his Snap map while sitting in the back of a car with me. God bless him. After he talked to me about the opportunity cost of not being on it when, quote, everyone else is on it, we engaged in that conversation, right? So in one sense, I lay down the law with data on my side, and it was to good effect. The second time I laid down the law with data on my side, and I was missing some of the social-emotional elements. And so I'm just sort of, sort of curious yeah. where you sit in that. It looks like Cara has an additional I'm, question. I'm raising comment. my hand. You're raising your hand. I'm okay. raising my hand. She's like literally goody not two shoes. Give me what's the data on that. So I'm not the economist on the podcast, but I want to put the pediatrician lens on, which is, I don't know that this is a completely fair comparison because what you Are you did, questioning my question? Are you undermining my I, question? I am, I am, I am, <laughs> Putting an asterisk next to your question, because I think what you did in the first scenario is you basically said, I'm changing the rules for you. And there's a reason why, and I want you to know why, but everyone else's rules are this and your rule is that. And I think there's a confounding effect there where I think, you know, just psychologically that the tween and teen responses, that is unfair. And so I think they're really two separate questions, right? Because you have to take that layer. I mean, they really off. are but two that, separate questions, yeah. but I felt bad taking two questions in a row. So I just <laughs> knocked them together. Okay, <laughs> great. Well, nice try, Vanessa. <laughs> so Emily, there are two questions for two you. Questions. And okay. now I'm okay. not even sure great. what I was asking, but go for it. So it's it's interesting. The, the data piece there in some ways, I think is a question of like, whether this is, this is what works for your kid. And I Mm. think for some kids that's like, you know, here's the data is like a very compelling thing. And sort of what, what you're outlining is your two different kids had different reactions. And my guess is that is because one of your kids just finds this language more compelling than the other kid and is sort of, and probably there's a gender component to that. What I think is hard about the data in that example is 
that it implicit in that is everyone else is wrong. Right. So I'm not going to let you get, or a lot of your friends, mm. parents, or people like other people are not right. So saying like, I'm not going to give this to you because the data shows that it's really bad. There's an unanswered question, which is okay. But like, what about all these other people? Like if data is the reason and it's something that is an objective reason, then why does Sanders' mom not know about data? And you don't want to be like, Sanders' mom doesn't know about data, right? Am I allowed to say what I said next? What did you say? I'm so curious. She's like, everyone else is on it. And I said, define everyone else for me. Name who everyone else is. And she did. And I was like, exactly. And she didn't say Okay. Anything that's an else? Approach. That's an approach. <laughs> it is. But I think you have to be prepared for that question. I might have framed it as because of the data, you know, this is how our family is choosing to make this decision. And it is because we think that this is the best thing for you in the context of our, of our family, rather than like, this is what data says. I mean, the second question about like, what do you do when your kid has disobeyed in this way? And then how do you have that conversation? I think that's a different, I think that's a different question. It's more about when you know, cause you were talking about how you're trying to keep your kids away from social media and you know, there are going to be costs to it. Balancing the social costs of tech or something else with this is what I know to be true based on the data and my lived experience. And I'm making this choice for our family. And yet I know you're going to pay some version of a price for it, but I'm going to hold to this. And I think part of what's hard about this is that it's like, it is so, even how problematic your kid will find that is so specific. I, for my older kid, like she's the last person to get a phone. She basically never asked. We eventually got her a phone because she kind of needed one for school, but it wasn't like, I wasn't putting up with like, where's my phone? Where's my phone? And I, I don't think I could have taken that basically. I just got lucky. And I, I think with the second kid, he's going to be, where's my phone? Where's my phone? And probably we'll yeah. just give in because I worked all so tired at all. <laughs> there you go. Are there studies that look at the social costs to delaying mm-hmm. No. paired up against, that would be really interesting. And that would be very interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it, there's all kinds of interesting stuff that one could imagine doing in this space. So you are a mind reader, Emily. That was one, our next question. So, okay. So one thing I would, I would think would be extremely interesting, which may or may not be doable, but is to think about, you know, experimenting with delayed phone or social media, whatever it is, introduction for groups versus individuals. So, you know, in my kind of imaginary, like if I were the dictator and I could do anything that I want to basically, you know, take one set of schools and say, the experiment here is we're going to have everybody wait Mm -hmm. until the eighth grade. We're going to say like, nobody gives their kids phones until eighth grade. Well, and you could imagine, you know, and, and then in another group you say, okay, we're going to take, you know, half the kids in the class or a quarter of the kids in the class. And we're not going to give them phones. Sort of think about like, like Lord of the flies. Exactly. I don't think you'd really run this, but, but there is a question of like, that I think is very important, which is if you took it out of the social context, if you actually made it just, we're not doing this now, is that going to improve overall mental health? Or, you know, is that actually just the same as everybody having it? They're just bullying each other in a different way that isn't on the phone. That's exactly right. And then the other thing is, you know, you you did call out social media as the thing that you and I think most people are most worried about. But there's another study to be done, I think, which looks at gambling and, you know, gaming, the extension of gaming, right? And yes, and like there are other worries 
about having a phone that are independent of social media. Like sleep, by the yeah, way. Sleep. Right. Like sleep. Like go circular. Yes. So I mean, one thing that I keep thinking about, I mean, Cara, I'm sorry because you're so sick of me talking about this on every episode, but I'm obsessed with phones in schools and what yeah. are schools' obligations or not to getting kids to put their phones elsewhere. Like one experiment I think that could be done is like schools that require kids to hand in their phones at the beginning of the day and pick them up at the end of the day versus schools where kids can like put them in their lockers, walk around with their po- in their pockets and all of that. And like what the quality of the classroom experience is, what the learning acquisition is, all of that. So like, I'm very curious That's about very doable. that. That feels like an extremely doable. Can experiment. we do it <laughs> at, at Vanessa's children's school specifically? Yeah. I know. I'm really. I'm working on. I'm throwing myself on my sword at how poorly I've done with my youngest kid and tech because there is. I mean, Emily, your oldest is around the age of my youngest, and yeah. there is a huge generational difference. Cars' kids are the ages of my older kids, and like. There is a problem here and I love social media and I love technology and I love texting with my friends and FaceTiming with people and seeing what people are doing. But like, we have a problem and it's getting worse. But I'm the pessimist in the room. And I think if you did that study, you would need to look at the number of kids. You'd have to somehow exploit the number of kids who are gaming at the back of a classroom, watching video, shopping, doing all the things. Watching porn. Right. Watching porn. So all the things, you know, social media is optimized for phones. And when you take away phones, that solves for one bucket. But there are all of these other things that kids do on their laptops and their laptops are going to be with them in classrooms. And so, you know, I so don't I, know. I will tell you, it's, I teach college students and I don't let them have laptops in the classroom. It's brilliant. Um, and that I is, love that. And I and the thing is, because it's a discussion class and I tell them, you know, if you have something up in front of your face and I tell, I'm like, I trust you, which it's not true, but I frame (laughs) it like that. I trust you, but you know, this is for the experience of other people. So when you're, someone is sitting behind you, like, and you're messing about on your thing, Mm -hmm. that's distracting for them. And it completely, so I, I taught this class in with and without laptops. It completely changes the experience of teaching. If people are not on their laptops and even if they you let them like take notes flat, it's just the the kind of not having that like ability to kind of be in your email and do you know, even if it's not porn, like this focus I think gets lost. Yes. When we have laptops. So I want to move from tech and sort of concrete data to you explore the harder to quantify things like feelings, like resilience and self-confidence and you touch on happiness. I want to talk about like how much can we, me- I mean, I know we can measure this stuff, right? There's the, all the strains of, yeah. of research out there, but like, I'm curious at what point are these sort of qualitative subjective things? How much are we able to measure them and how much do we need to sort of like let go of kind of trying to, because I came from a background where I was trying to build girl self-esteem through sports. So elementary school age girls. And I, I'm like, I know it's working. I can see it's working. The parents are coming to tell, like I could see everything, but when it comes to something like self-confidence, it's like, we can do surveys, we can do all sorts of stuff, but like, can we really measure things like 
those kinds of emotions? A, a little bit. So I wouldn't totally give up on the idea of measuring things. We can certainly measure the, you know, potentially reductions in very bad outcomes, right? Those are the easiest things to mm. measure, you know, sort of diagnosed mental health disorders. That's the tail end of, of the stuff that, that we're looking at. It's easier. It's easier to measure. I do think that there are, we have a lot of validated survey metrics that would get at some of these things. And my feeling is we should lean into those because if we can measure something, we will focus on improving it, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you can measure test, like why is every evaluation of school quality about test scores? It's because we have it. It's mm -hmm. because that's a thing that we see. And so when we ask about, that's kind of all we have about schools, even though when you ask parents, like, what do you care about in your school? They say all kinds of things that are nothing to do with like, you know, where they fall in the test score distribution about, you know, does my kid love learning? Are they having a good time? Do they feel like they're valued and all this other stuff? We don't measure any of that stuff. And so then we just have this one metric. And so I think the more we can say, you know, look, we do have ways to measure these things and they can have numbers on them. You could say, I wish that we didn't have that bias, but we do have that bias. And once we have it, I think the more we can measure that stuff. And you can see in studies about bullying and resilience, we have metrics that are where we can see what are the kinds of things that impact kids, you know, kids' resilience to, to, various, to various negative shocks. And those can be measured. But when people say, Car and I think about this all the time, it's like, I just want my kid to be happy. Mm-hmm. And then other people are like, happiness shouldn't be the goal. Happiness is a byproduct of other things. Like, how do you respond to that? Like, I just want my kid to be happy. Like, obviously, yes, we all want our kids. <laughs> I just want my kid to be unfulfilled. No, obviously, we want our kids to be happy. But like, are we also just full of shit? Like, are we saying we want that, but really we just want them to have like really good grades and high SAT scores and high paying jobs? Like, how authentic does that feel? I mean, I think that people mean all of those things. I think part of it is like when you say, I just want my kid to be happy. Some of what people mean is the way that you get happy mm. is by like being a rich person with high SAT scores who went to an Ivy League <laughs> school. The thing that I wish people thought more about or express is, is not, like, when you say, I want my kid to be happy, I, I think it's misleading because your kid isn't going to be happy all the time. And that's not really what you want. You want them to be adaptive. You want them to be content. You want them to find joy and value themselves. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be happy all the time. And I actually think the hardest parts of parenting are kind of the, the part where your kid is not happy, but you can't fix it. And it's just part of being a person, right? Like their friends had a party and they didn't get invited. That thing sucks. And, you know, that's that sucks. Your temptation is so much to be like, well, how can I make you happy? Like, do you want an ice cream? Like those people are losers, you know, whatever. <laughs> but like sometimes it's just like that is sucky. And I'm the, sorry uh, that, that dear happened. listener, those are things not to say. By the way, Emily's telling you all the things don't, not you don't to say. But you could <laughs> say that's you could say that stinks. I'm sorry that yes. that happened. And that sounds really bad. And I'm sorry. And, you know. I'd love to hear you tell me about how you feel about that, or it's okay to feel sad about this. I mean, I don't, I think it's too much in the happiness is it's too vague. And I think you're right that, you know, sort of these quantifiable metrics of what happiness looks and feels like tend to be the goal because they're measurable. They're quantifiable. They have some inherent value, whatever that value is. Money has that value. You can do things with it. And therefore, if you have more of it, you're supposed to be happier, but we know all those studies that show that money actually does not confer happiness. That, that data is actually amazing when you look at it, that on the more extreme ends, people with the most money are often the least happy, which is, you know, very, very interesting. 
but it's a different kind of unhappiness. So I think Lisa Damore talks about this a lot in terms of what is mental health and mental health is adaptability. It is the ability to be in a situation, maybe a positive one, maybe a negative one, and sit with your feelings and handle those feelings and get through the situation. And I think that is what we all want for our kids. And and happiness is a byproduct of that, right? And happiness is the the goal. Like having raised two kids and one out the door and the other one, one foot out the door, the hope is not that they're completely happy at right. this moment because I mean, not that I want them to be unhappy, but then what is there to look forward to in life? And what is there to, right? So like, it's like there's- Someday I will be happy. Someday, like the joy, the joy (laughs) happens intermittently and all that, you know, and you have good friendships and good connections. And then by the way, it's attainable in a different way at a different level as you get older. Like you can work towards this sort of something. If you, it's sort of like if you get everything in life when you're young, sometimes you don't appreciate- all those things when you're young and then not always and not all kids and it depends on temperament and all that stuff. But I want to go back to data around this and understanding numbers and understanding- You don't want to keep talking about feelings, Cara? Well, I I do <laughs> actually. Yeah, I, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about sort of, you know, Emily, you hit on it that the hardest part of raising a kid, and I would argue this is hard for people who aren't parents as well, for grandparents who are involved in kids' lives, for teachers, mentors, healthcare providers- the hardest part is where you're watching them in a tough bind. You're watching them go through a growth opportunity, if you will, you know, whatever you want to call it, but it's painful. And it's, and not being invited to the party is the perfect, you know, descriptor of, it can be bigger, it can be smaller than that, but it's, you know, it's that feeling. And so I wonder if there is any data around how to guide kids through that, how much parents are always looking for this balance between helping, be, you know, you don't want to be a crutch, you don't want to be a snowplow parent, and yet you don't want to leave your kid floundering. And has anyone looked at that? Not really. So I think there's sort of two things in data that I would pull out there. So one is a little bit tangential, but in the question of, you know, how much scaffolding is the right amount of scaffolding to provide your kid to get them through like school. So putting aside like my friends had a party, but like, you know, how much should you be like making sure that their pilgrim diorama like looks <laughs> awesome? Right? And I think there I was very be... unhelpful with that. <laughs> like, Not, like I tried. I tried. <laughs> you made it best, your best effort. But, you know, there I think there's a most of what we know in the data is there's some happy medium. So definitely on average sort of involved parental involvement with kids is good. But there is some evidence that, you know, sort of particularly as kids then leave the home, the sort of having a lot of involvement before can be problematic for mental health. So there's sort of sort of a balance there in that piece. I think the other piece of literature I would draw on is studies where they take kids all being bullied. So this is more in the socio-emotional health, like every kid in the study is being bullied. And the question they're asking is not like what keeps you from being bullied, but what helps you like not have mental health mm-hmm. consequences of that. And that's right. basically like, do you have a stable home? And it's actually nothing about like whether you're like what particular language your parents use. It's it's just like kids who are in a stable home environment, if they have siblings that they get along with, or they have one friend that's a close friend, that's kind of buoying for those um, sort of buoying them into resilience through those things. And so I think for that, that piece for me is quite actionable because I think it says just by being there Mm -hmm. and being the place that your kid can come every day and 
see you and have someone who loves them, that's it. That's what you're providing. You don't need to fix it. You're not going to you know, go get find the bully. Like you're just there. Does it track with parenting style? Because there's a lot of data around, you know, authoritative parents and authoritarian parents and, you know, yada, yada. I don't think we're measured in that. I mean, I think it's it's just like sort of, is there a stable, yeah. you know, home environment? Emily, I want to close with a question about instincts. I am an instinctive person, but I get to spend my life speaking to experts and hearing their wisdom and their research and their data. And over time, I've been sort of like figuring out how do I balance, right? Cara is a scientist. You are a social scientist. I am neither of those things. What room is there for instinct, for gut, when you're staring down data, when you're staring down kind of like expert wisdom and advice? Like, where's the balancing act there? I see the data as an input to your decisions. And then there are other inputs. And particularly when we talk about older kids, the tech stuff is a good example. Sleep stuff is a good example. There's an average answer. There's a kind of set of information in the data that you want to pull. And then there's like, what works for my family? And like, what is my feeling about what's right for my kid? And actually that, that instinct thing, like what's the, what do I feel is right for my kid? That's really important because behind that is all of the all of the data that you have mm-hmm. about your own kid that is like not in this data on the average. So in some sense, it's not like I would frame it as like, you know, your that's not your instinct. That's your like personal data, mm-hmm. right? And you get your personal data to the aggregate data and and put them together. But I I mean, no single piece of average data is going to answer some question about what the right thing to do is. That's this is something you use and in many cases, it can be a grounding place to start a conversation or to start an interaction or to start a decision and then think about, okay, this is what we think works for the average kid or works for the, you know, the average family or is the most common thing to do. Like, where would we go from, where would we go from here? And is there something in the data that tells me like one direction is a really bad one? You know, sometimes you'll see something in the data and be like, wow, I might have had an instinct in that direction, but boy, the data tells me like, that's not good or that really I should really pause because of the data there. It's a grounding, grounding point. Is it fair to say that Vanessa's instinct or mine or yours is essentially data with an N of one? Absolutely. It's just mm-hmm. all we know. And you're just comparing it to data collected on a bigger group. And sometimes yes. it's going to align and sometimes it's not. Yeah. Data, and Vanessa has an N of four, by the way. I, heard. I was going to uh, say. You know what? And, she actually gets credit for twice that. Because it's just so many kids. So many Even kids. though I got a B minus in economics at Wellesley. It's so good that I you remember still, that. Because <laughs> it's the lowest grade I have, have ever chip, gotten. Did you have chip I had chip case? case. Yeah, chip I did case, have chip yeah. case. Who yeah. was beloved just, and a huge yes. soccer fan and an amazing man. And I was so embarrassed to get such a mediocre grade in his class. All I wanted to do was do well. And it's the lowest grade I got in all of college. So that you can tell I've really let go of that, Emily. But right, so my N of four, I also have noticed that as my kids have gotten older, as you say, I have more data, I know them better. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, the instinct, which apparently is not instinct, but just incredible research I have garnered over, you know, two decades. Yes. I'm learning to like listen to that quicker and start to kind of not yeah. act necessarily, but like begin to process totally. it. And so totally. 
people who are listening and are at the like early end of puberty or early end of adolescence, either as a teacher or a parent, like it doesn't get easier necessarily, but you get better at it. And I think part of the reason you get better at it is because you're like more comfortable with the data as it's coming in, as opposed to at the beginning where you're like, it's like a flood. And you get to experiment. I mean, on your individual kit, like you get like, I don't mean like, you know, an explicit. My way. poor <laughs> like, But you do, you get to like sort of when your kid is, has one of these things and, you, and you're going to try something. And sometimes when you try something later, you're going to be like, oh, that did not work. Like that wasn't, but sometimes you'll try something and be like, oh, that actually, that seemed to help them. Like they seem to react well to that. Let me modify on that when I come into this situation going forward, because you're going to have a million of a very similar situation with each kid. And they often have the last laugh because then they try on a new personality or they try on a new style. And suddenly, and this is the beauty of puberty and adolescence, they morph and then you have to up your game. And so I think it's a perfect place to end. (laughs) That is a perfect place to end. (laughs) Just please come back. We love speaking with you. This is so great. Thank Emily, you. thank you. Thank you. I think I'm here to tell you, I think you might be a people person. I don't know how to, I don't know how to break it to you, but like, so now I'm going to go to my medical school. I'm going to apply to medical school. It's not too late. Come back. You are amazing. Thank you so much thank for you being with so us. Much. People are going to freak out when they see your <laughs> name in our podcast feed. I'm so excited. Thank you. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. Yet. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.